And every one of you here this morning as we continue in our study through the book of Matthew. We'll be in Matthew chapter 11 this morning. And that couldn't have been a better song um, to sing in preparation for our study this morning on Matthew 11. uh, Because we are talking about the one um, who has come and the one who will come again. um, Jesus, our Savior and our King. And so we want to uh, continue our look in that, and um, certainly, you know, this week our hearts um, have been moved. Um, you could hear that in, in Derek's prayer, just um, we pray the Lord to come back, and to come back soon, and that the, the evil in our world uh, would be put to an end. Um, so let's again pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll start in Matthew chapter 11. Actually, let's read Matthew 11, we'll read the first a number of verses, and then we'll pray and get into it this morning. So in verse 11, it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see and the lame walk, The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. Their dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and again, we just want to echo everything we've we've sung and and prayed already this morning. Uh, We pray that um, that you would give us soft hearts and clear minds, and Lord, that you would... Uh, Help us um, to understand your word and to understand the times that we're living in. And we have the need for your word and your power to go forth in the world. And we have the need for your son uh, to return and to set up his kingdom in full and to right every wrong. And so we, this morning, ask you to purify our hearts and minds, to cleanse us, to remove the junk Uh, from our lives that hinder us from enjoying you fully and from fully participating in your work in this world. We thank you that your love and grace and mercy are new for us each day. We thank you and we ask it in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. So again, we see this morning in chapter 11 that Jesus had, you know, finished commanding his disciples um, you know, giving them instructions. And then he went in and was teaching in, in these various cities. Now at this time, John, the one who is, we, we know as, or we refer to as John the Baptist, the one that had baptized Jesus in the Jordan River where the Spirit of the Holy Spirit, through the, you know, via the dove, um, ascended and onto Jesus. The, the word from the Father came uh, from heaven, uh, testifying that Jesus was, um, more than a man, he was the Christ, the Son of God. He is you know, fully God and fully man, the one who was the promised Messiah, the promised Savior, the promised King, that he, will, that he is all of this. And you, know, you can imagine the hope that John had 
Um, and the thoughts that he has are still dictated by his understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, by his understanding of what the culture, you know, his culture um, is and what he's, you know, grown up with from his youth, that, um, that the context cannot be forgotten. The context cannot be forgotten that the Hebrew people at this time are um, in their land, but it is an occupied land. You know, it is occupied by the Roman government. The, the Romans are oppressive, and they are seeking the Messiah who's going to come. And when he comes, he's going to set up his everlasting kingdom, and he's going to free them from Roman oppression, right? I mean, isn't that the natural expectation of what the Messiah is going to do for them? And so now, John the Baptist finds himself in prison. And there has to be a little bit of question in his mind because he, he sends his, two of his disciples. You know, and a, a disciple means a, you know, a follower. Okay? It's not like this ultra-spiritual um, word. I mean, we use it in a very spiritual you know, context, but it's not this ultra-spiritual word that... Um, you know, you know, many people had disciples. Is I guess what I'm what I'm getting at there. It's you know who you're a disciple of is what really matters. Um, it's an apprentice. It wants it, you know the desire to be like you know someone else, uh, to be like one's teacher. And so John the Baptist had his disciples of his own, and he sent two of them to Jesus and said, "Are you the coming one, or do we look for another?" Now, this phrase, the coming one, um, is, is something that, you know, it's like a title. It's something that would have been understood and known what is being asked here. Are you the coming one? It's like, are you the, really, the question is, are you the, the anointed one? The, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Psalm 47, Psalm chapter 40, verse 7 says, um, Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. Um, and so there's this prophetic sense that, you know, is, is Jesus the one that has been promised? You can so think John the Baptist's mindset works a little bit like this. If I'm the forerunner for the Messiah, and Jesus is the Messiah, then why am I in prison? It makes sense, right? So, the, again, that mindset is there because he ex- expecting the Messiah to bring Forth full justice at the current time. So it's understandable that John the Baptist would want reassurance from Jesus of what inside he knows to be true. That Jesus is indeed the promised one. Now, we're not unlike that. We are similar, I think, at times, especially when hardship comes, our, our thoughts can, can be as basic as, you know, God, if you love me, or God, if you love us, then why is this bad thing happening? Or why did this bad thing happen? You know, in our weakness, we're easily discouraged. In our limited scope of sight, you know, we are easily discouraged. And sometimes, life is so difficult, it is natural that we would be discouraged. It's natural that we would be discouraged. But in times of doubt, that's when we really need to go to Jesus. Just like John the Baptist sent the messengers to Jesus. We, we don't go to other sources to try to find an answer, to try to find 
comfort or hope. We go to the source to find it. And we have the advantage of looking backwards in history. So we look back at the cross and we see, what do we see? Jesus crucified for our sins, buried, and risen again with victory over sin and death and with the promise that he will come again. He has ascended to the Father, but the promise is that he will you know, return. And so this is our great hope. In the midst of personal tragedy, this is our great hope. And the, and the, in the face of, of violence that is hard to understand, in the face of violence that is that you know even we've seen this week that is incomprehensible, what do we do? Where do we go? Where do we turn? Jesus. And I'm going to change, I think I'm going to change microphones. Is that okay if we do that? Those who believe that, you know, once you die, that's just all there is. Where do you go? There is nothing to go to. It is just hopelessness. Now, what we want to be careful of is that we don't have, you know, some placebo just to make us feel better about things. But we have a reason for the hope. We have a reasonable hope. Because of what Jesus has done and who he has proven himself to be. From the prophecies that have already been fulfilled in him. We have a reasonable hope based on the promises of God that are true. That he will return for us and set things straight. Because this is what Jesus says in verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now Jesus tells the disciples that the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah are being fulfilled in him. You know, Jesus knows the reassurance that John the Baptist needed in this time. And so he points him to the Old Testament prophecies that have been fulfilled. Isaiah 35, 5 through, 6, 5 through 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. So when, when Jesus quotes the beginning of that, about the, the lame, you know, walking, the blind, seeing, you know, John the Baptist knows the rest of it, okay? He knows the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, so he knows the rest of it about the waters burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And, you know, where did John the Baptist have his ministry? Out in the desert. And so he, you know, this is, this is Jesus communicating to him what he needs to hear. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings 
to the poor, the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So, you know, in the words that Jesus gives to say back to John, he is, you know, saying, hey, what was promised in the Old Testament is being fulfilled now. So we pick up back in verse 7. So it says that as they departed, so that's the two disciples of John the Baptist departed. It says, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And so there Jesus, to the multitude, talks about John the Baptist, talks about his place in history, and he quotes Malachi 3.1, giving the prophecy, saying, you know, this is about John the Baptist, the messenger. Now, think about this. If Jesus says, this is about John the Baptist, the messenger, behold, I send my messenger before your face. Well, whose face is it? Well, it's his. Who will prepare your way before you? Well, who is the you there? Well, it's him. So, you know, people want to say sometimes, well, Jesus, you know, he was just a good teacher and that's all he claimed to be. No, over and over again throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus making these claims that he is the one that he is equating himself with Yahweh, which is the the Hebrew, the you know kind of the ultimate Hebrew word for God. He is equating himself in that sense. Now the rest of Malachi three one says, "And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight." Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Like, again, there's no question about what Jesus is claiming. You can say you're right or wrong about that claim, but it doesn't make any sense to say that Jesus isn't claiming to be the Messiah, to be the promised one of God. And then Jesus continues in verse 11. He says, Surely I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, there's a lot in those verses. We're going to take, you know, I can't promise we're going to get every point here that you could get by any means. But let's get some highlights. So he talks about the greatness of John the Baptist. And then he says, but he was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And, and really, I, I think what's really being said there is greater is what's to come than it is now. You know, and you just want to be there. You know, that's the key thing first, is to be qualified to be there in the kingdom of heaven. Because 
that's better than even the greatest, the, the lowest place in the kingdom of God, the ultimate kingdom of God in the, in the eternal sense. The lowest place there, which, I mean, is higher than the highest place here in the temporal, in the temporary. So that's pretty cool. I mean, that's a lot to look forward to, you know. So you think, man, I, you know, in the big picture of the world, maybe I'm kind of in a low, low place. Well, if you're in the kingdom of heaven, you're in a higher place than anything this world can offer you. Your position as a son or daughter of God, part of God's family and part of the kingdom is higher than anything in this world can offer you. You could be offered to be the head of a nation that's smaller than being least in the kingdom of heaven. That's smaller. So the, because the problem is priorities. This is a problem for all of us all the time. Priorities. So if you think that the, the smallest thing in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the greatest thing on earth, that, I mean, that's got to affect our priorities. But we live so often as if the small things on earth here are greater than the great things of the kingdom. And if we're honest about it. And so that really, you know, we have a warped sense of reality. Our perceptions are all off. And so that's why we get so upset about little things. Little things. You know, you're driving in your car and somebody cuts in front of you too close. You get all angry. I mean, I get it. I get angry too. But in the kingdom of heaven, but in the kingdom of heaven, isn't that kind of tiny? Somebody, you know, you, you expect a certain amount of kindness when you, you know, check out at the grocery store and somebody is rude to you. And, you, you know, you're frustrated about it. You've been, you know, you, you've been disrespected. Yeah, we don't like that. I don't like that. Nobody likes that. But think about the kingdom of heaven. And if our kingdom of heaven is our priority... What are we more likely to do in those situations? To give grace, to extend love, to give care to somebody who in that moment is making it difficult for us to give that to them. Now, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. What does this mean? You see, the, it, it, it suffers violence because especially the religious leaders of this time are rejecting Jesus. And that is causing violence. Because Jesus talks about it's better for someone to have a millstone, that's a huge heavy stone, you know, tied around their, their neck, you know, and thrown into the river and to drown, to die, than to keep one of these little ones from entering the kingdom. You see, because in reality, the hypocrisy, the legalism of the religious leaders was 
hurting those who should be entering into the kingdom. Cain was suffering violence because of that. It says the violent take it by force. And then he says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So again, Jesus is clearly stating that with him, something new is here. That, I mean, even back to the prophetic deals about this new covenant that would come. You know, all the, old prof- all the prophets before John are part of this old covenant, this old way. Okay? But there's something new and better. And he says this, if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, what does that mean? Well, Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the, uh, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Before the, awesome day, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Well, and then Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what, it, what Jesus is saying there is if the religious leaders, if the nation as a whole would accept him, then, Jesus, then sorry, Elijah would be, sorry, John the Baptist would be fulfilling this prophecy that it's, it's like Elijah the, the prophet you know, returning and coming back. But he knows that they're going to reject him so that there's still more to be fulfilled. He knew that they would make excuses of why they were not going to accept him. And so we know that there has to be this second, what we call the second coming, you know, of the Lord. That because of the rejection of the people, John the Baptist doesn't get to fulfill this part of the prophecy of being Elijah to come. Something else is to be expected. Because in verse and when I talked about the excuses, listen to what Jesus says in verses 16 through 19. But what, to, what, what to, shall I like in this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. Okay, so he, again, he has this illustration of kids playing games. You know, so you've got some kids that are playing games, and they want their other friends to join in in the games. And so they're like, we're going to play this happy game. We're going to do this flute and dance game. And the others are like, eh, we're not interested. We don't want to play that. And then the ones go, oh, okay, well, we'll play this morning game, which sounds weird, but we, you, know, you may have grown up singing like London Bridges Falling Down, Ashes, Ashes, you know, that, so we do play morning games, which is kind of weird if you think about what that, that is all really about, okay? So, but, but we do that, but then they didn't want to do that either. So no matter which way you played the game, <laughs> their companions didn't want to play with them. A happy game, a sad game, it didn't matter. So then J- Jesus says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Because remember, John the Baptist was out in the wilderness, and he wore uncomfortable camel's hair clothing, and he ate, you know, wild honey and locusts. Mmm. Tasty, right? So he's as, um, you know, in appearance, in outward appearance, he's as pure as it gets. Okay? But they rejected him. 
And then the Son of Man, verse 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a glutton and a, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Hey, remember when Jesus called Matthew, the one who wrote this book, the tax collector, and then went to his house and all of Matthew's you know, friends you know, are there and they are all their tax collectors and notorious sinners and the Pharisees are asking, why does Jesus do this? Why does he eat with, quote-unquote, these types of people? Well, the answer is simple, because he loved them. He wanted to offer them life and hope and joy in himself. But you see, the Pharisees and other religious leaders of this time would not be satisfied either way. They wouldn't be satisfied with the apparent purity of John the Baptist or the apparent license that Jesus took. Now, we know Jesus did that with a pure heart and without sin. But the perceptions from the outsiders, either way, were they going to be satisfied? No. Either way. But notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 19, but wisdom is justified by her children. Or yours might read, wisdom is justified by her works or her you know, results. What is a result? What is the result of the way of the Pharisees? Well, it's the result is hypocrisy. The, the result is the outward appearance of things, but the inwardly corrupt heart. Outside things look fine. Inwardly, they're a mess. This is oftentimes what religion does. Re, see, religion doesn't have any problem with the family who's, you know, in their house, it's dysfunctional. Things are a mess. People are fighting. People are angry. It's a difficult situation. But then on, you know, Sunday morning, everybody puts on the nice clothes and smiles and looks proper and sits and listens and leaves not different than when they walked in. What is that? I mean, it doesn't ultimately help anything. That results in death. You know, it, it results in difficulties and pain. We have to be really careful that we don't care more about outward appearances than we do inward realities. That we don't end up playing that game. It's so easy to play. Any of us can play it. And you don't have to, you know, now, you know hear what I'm saying on this. It doesn't have to do with, you know, I, I, I you know, make a point about, you know, putting on the nice clothes. You can put on, I mean, you can, have, you can be a come as you are, like we are. And you can still do that. You can still pretend that everything is good when it's not. You can pretend that you have it all together when you don't. You know, that's the whole real key to it. Whatever forms that takes and what that looks like. I think that's a little easier in religious settings where nobody really has to know anybody. You know, you you get the cultural advantages without any real call to action and and work and, and, and things that are difficult. So the question that's being asked there is, you know, what, 
ultimately is, you know, what type of person is being produced through this? And so when you look at the type of person that Jesus is producing, as you look at his disciples, though not perfect and works in progress, as we all are, but you see somebody like Matthew who just answers the call and leaves everything behind and follows. That's a change of heart. A heart that was motivated by greed becomes a heart that's motivated by you know, love and, and justice and you know, following after the things of God. That's a change. You know, those are the sort of changes that we would expect. Religion is largely going to change externalities. The external things. But meeting Jesus should change us from the inside out. You know, the inward realities of the heart, of our, our passions, our, our motivations, our desires. Our, it should change our care. Ultimately, it's change our character. You know, a person who's unethical, when they meet Jesus, should not, I mean, it may take some time to change all the little things, but we should expect to see a change from unethical to ethical. And if that change never happens, well, did the person ever know Jesus? We should expect if somebody meets Jesus, if they were a racist when they met Jesus, that they wouldn't be after walking with him for a little bit of time. That they would see that that, that inward work would happen in their lives and their lives and their hatred would be replaced with love. Well, if there's always hatred... Did the person ever know Jesus or meet Jesus? I mean, the scripture certainly asks and answers that question. That there's an expectation that there's going to be change. And without that expectation, we're only left... And I think this is what we have a lot in the South. A lot of our quote-unquote Christianity is no more than a, a mental agreement with the facts. Yes, I believe there's a God. Yes, I believe there's a creator. Yes, I believe that there's a heaven and a hell. There's a bigger thing. Now, a lot of those are now even being, you know, fewer people believing those things. But even I'm talking about, it's, it's an agreement Yes, I have sin. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. You can know all of that. Well, the scripture says, well, even the demons know all of that. There's a difference between knowing it intellectually and submitting your life, begging forgiveness of the the Savior and King of the universe. There's a difference between those things. And we have to love the people around us to make sure we have that right in our own lives, but also not to be content with an intel- just a, a, a mere intellectual agreement. Yes, we have to have that intellectual agreement, but that's not the end of the story. That's, that's the, a beginning baseline step. A mental agreement doesn't save anyone. Doesn't save anyone. 
Because Jesus then says this, then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. You see, this is the expectation of Jesus is that there is actually a turn. There is actually a change. You don't just see it and go, wow, that's amazing. But it causes an internal change that has an eternal result. Verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Hey, perhaps if you're in mind here, Jesus has the story of Jonah and Nineveh in mind. Where the Gentiles, you know, that were told, hey, judgment is coming because of their wickedness, the entire city repented. Now, that didn't last permanently. That only lasted for a couple generations. But those people were spared judgment because they repented. Verse 22, but I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works were done in you, have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, there are a few harsher words that Jesus could say. Because he takes what they view as like the worst example of human wickedness. You know, like the worst, you know, it's like name a place that's really bad. You know, I mean, if you ask them at this time, name like the worst place in history. Oh, Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, that's what they would say. And, and then Jesus said, well, in the judgment, it would be better for them than for you guys. You who think you are right with God. You who think you are religious. Like, it doesn't get, I mean, there are, you can't speak harsher words to an audience than what Jesus does here. I mean, it's, it's really not possible, people. But why does he say this? Just so he can condemn them? Just so that they receive judgment? Now listen to what he says here. At that time, this is all together. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All these things have delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and to the one whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So he doesn't want to just leave them there. He does say, you have hidden these, you know, to the far, you have hidden these from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Well, I mean, there's some tongue in cheek there. Just like Jesus says, you know, the one, you know, his, who isn't sick has no need of a physician when he's asked, why does he go to certain people? See, because when people don't realize that they have a need, it's hard to help. When these people think they're wise, that they've got it all figured out about God and about life and about eternity. They think they understand it all, and they're not teachable. You know, they are wise, quote-unquote. 
but those who, you know, it, it's just that classic, what the scripture says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, we live in a time, and it's not much different, I think, from all other times. I mean, it's different in some ways, but the human heart's still corrupt. But, you know, when... You know, we we live in a time where people want you to say that you're the greatest. You know, that's like encouraged. Build yourself up so much. And this expectation that you're basically a God on this earth. You know, and and I think that leaves... A, a culture full of disillusioned people. When, when life doesn't turn out like that, when you don't appear to be winning, you know, people get disillusioned with what they've been told. They get angry and they get bitter. And that certainly doesn't explain all of our ills. But we need to go back to an understanding that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. We we need to encourage humility and to provide examples of humility in our culture. But but this is what I want to say in this, because when Jesus says, Come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We usually find that whenever Jesus gives a, a hard word, his gentleness is right behind it. For those who will receive it and accept it. When he when he gives the words of, of condemnation. When he gives the words of judgment, there's an opportunity for the people to to bow down, to humble themselves, and to ask for help. For those who are not too prideful to do it. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is, is light. You know, I think this is one of those verses that, you know, we, we talk about it in the, in the first sense of, the, of, of it in terms of our applications. You know, what does this mean in terms of our applications? Well, when you first come to believe in Jesus, what did you find at the foot of the cross? When, you, when your burdens were, were taken off of you, when your sin was taken off of you and it was on the account of Jesus and no longer on your account, what did you feel? You felt, you know, liberty. You felt freedom. You felt a lightness to you that you that in your spirit, you know, you could leap higher because you weren't weighted down with your sin anymore. And I, I think that's the first sense in which to take, you know, these verses. But there's another application there because as we go throughout life and we experience hardship and we experience difficulty and we're burdened by the weight, you know, of this world. When we turn on the news and our hearts are broken, you know, again and again and again, 
We've got to go back to the cross and find rest in Jesus. In the next chapter, Jesus talks about you know, the Sabbath and rest and that he ultimately is the rest that we need. And so we've got that to look forward to next week. But, you know, you can find yourself heavy laden in these days. Well, where do you go again? Like John the Baptist in the prison, you go, hey, we need to hear from you, Jesus, and see and be reminded of your reality, of your truth, that Jesus is going to return and to set his kingdom in full effect. Justice will be had. We also have to understand there is judgment with that. You can't eliminate it. But it's a righteous judgment because Jesus is the one who is doing it. Not just human beings. There's a lot that can be said and a lot that is being said you know, about what happened you know, this week in Florida. And I'm not, I mean, we all have thoughts on the problems and solutions and all of this, but I, w- I want to take us to one very basic thought about that this morning. When you think about those young people who were murdered, who in their lives loved them enough to share Jesus with them? For us as followers of Jesus, yes, we need to care about the, you know, the gun issue and the safety issue and the mental health issues and all of these other issues. I'm not telling us to ignore that by any means. Right now is not the time in this context for me to give you my opinions about that. But Jesus has a mission for us. And when I think about that situation and all the other situations, see, that one gets our attention because there's a lot of people at once. But there's people dying every day, one way or another, through violence, through accidents, through sicknesses. People in the world dying every day. And the question for each death is, for each of those who, who was murdered, this, for you know, all, of, all the people, was there somebody in their life that loved them enough to share the hope of Jesus with them in a clear way? They could understand it. They could make their own decision about who Jesus is and what they're going to do with him. You think about the ones who commit the murders. Was there ever somebody in that person's life saying, hey, there's somebody who loves you and his name is Jesus. You know, those are the questions I think we as followers of Jesus have to ask. The world doesn't have to ask that question. The world doesn't have to think about that. Our culture and society as a whole. But as far as the church, as far as followers of Jesus, we have to think about that and we have to ask that question. Who shared the love? Who loved enough that they wouldn't let their fears overcome them? Who loved enough to share? You know, and, and that's a question I have to ask myself. We each have to ask individually, but we also have to ask collectively. Do we love enough? 
to share. Because every person in your life, you, you know, we don't know. We don't have the timetables where we get to say, hey, this person's going to depart this day and time. We usually have, don't know that. Especially with the unexpected. Well, as followers of Jesus, I think we have to live as if the unexpected is the expected. Because you know what we expect? We expect Jesus to return. We expect Jesus to return. And so we want people to be ready for that day. Listen, guilt motivates you for a little bit. Hey, if, if guilt gets the track, the train on the right track, praise God. So yeah, here, here's the guilt. Here's the guilt. You want the guilt? Every one of us that has Jesus has him because somebody loved us enough to share him with us. Right? So the guilt is, if we don't do that, we're keeping that love for ourselves and we're not passing it on. I mean, we should feel guilty about that if we're not doing that, right? I mean, that just makes sense. But here's the problem. That guilt will motivate you like today and tomorrow. It might make it to Tuesday. You know, it might make it to Tuesday. That's what guilt's going to do for you. But if you are not, I mean, if you're filled up with the love of Jesus, see, guilt can only fill you up for just a a little bit and give you a little bit. And and love is the same thing. It's got to be replenished. It's got to be replenished with time in the word and in in prayer and in fellowship and putting the right inputs into our lives, right? You got to fill that love tank. But, I mean, when when you're filled up with love, that's got to come out of you. It's got to be you know, released. So I'm not trying to get us in the mission that Jesus gives us to be ultimately motivated by guilt. Let me just get you on the right track for a little bit of time. We want that track, that train to stay on the track and get some momentum and start going down, you know, like downhill, running downhill. That's love. Love has to do that. The love of Jesus filling us, the power of the Spirit of God filling us, the knowledge of the Word of God filling us. That's the only way that works. That's the only way that works. So the guilt, when we, when we come and take the bread and the cup, leave the guilt there. We can say, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Leave the guilt there, though, and say, Lord, fill me up with your love to overflowing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Help us to live like it. Help us to make decisions like it. Help us to be passionate for what you're passionate about. Jesus, we're so thankful that whenever you give that hard word, there's a soft word coming right behind And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to put our burdens to you and we would just take what you've given us to carry, that you would fill us with your love as we take that bread and that cup that reminds us of the great cost of the, at the cross that you paid, Jesus, that our guilts would be laid down, 
that we be filled with love, power, sound mind, full of your Holy Spirit, dear God. Help us, we pray, in your name, Jesus, we ask it. Help our world, help our, na- our nation. Lord, help your gospel to go forward in it that changes people's lives and saves people's lives here on earth, but also in eternity. God, we want to see that. We want to be part.